Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. They were funded by a company that needed to sell the drink. Scientists started to advise people that any fluid lost during exercise was potentially harmful. Other animals lacked the one thing we could do, and that was sweat. Why would you take that physiology and reduce it to the level of a radiator in a car? It's just daft. So I've been the editor of a running and cycling magazine now for just on 20 years, and uh, if there's one subject that I have probably written, researched, have been asked questions about, um, even asked questions of myself about for over these last 20 years, is the story of hydration. And it's one of those topics that seems so utterly simple to the man in the street, but in fact has so many different parts to it, it has so many levels of understanding to it, and there are so many things that have happened in the last decade that have um, changed the way we think about hydration, particularly in the sporting context. So for those of you marathon runners, triathletes, anybody involved in endurance sport, and I guess anybody that needs to hydrate during an event, this is the kind of podcast you need to listen to because we really want to kind of put down where the research is some of the misnomers that have happened over the last 20, 30, 50 years, some of the great stories that are involved in this very complex uh, topic that on the face of it seems such a, such a simple thing to understand. So Ross Tucker, as usual, is with me here today. And uh, we're going to start off with something, a bit of a, I guess, uh, an ode to one of our professors here in South Africa, Professor Tim Noakes, who wrote a book in 2012 called Waterlogged which was all about this very issue of hydration. And he was one of those guys that kind of set the tone for how we thought about hydration. And that tone has taken its way through now. But let's talk about the history of hydration. Like when did this, the talk about hydration sort of start and where did it kind of, how's it evolved into where it is today? So Tim, Tim didn't, Tim, Tim wasn't really just one of the guys doing it. Tim was the guy who I think solved it. And when I started honors, um, so, the way it works here in South Africa is we um, we do an undergraduate in, in some general Bachelor of Science degree. Mine was biochemistry and physiology. And then in 2002, I ended up starting my postgraduate studies and honors. And Tim used to run a thing on a Friday morning called Noakes Hour, where for an hour, he just used to sit with us and talk. And this I actually was came to one of those. I remember. Special that. guest Fantastic. invite. Yep. And yep. we had this every week, except when he was out of the country. And it was the best part of honors. Yeah. Because I came down here to study under Tim specifically. I mean, that was my intention from the day I left school. And Tim would talk to us about this hyponatremia, dehydration, fluid intake thing. And it is a it is a fascinating topic. And I hope listeners will stick with us because you're going to encounter a murder mystery tragedy <laughs> where science, which often had good intentions and was sometimes actually quite good science, led people down a path that would actually be fatal. Uh, there was corporate greed. There were cover-ups. There were conspiracies. And at the end of it all, you'll hear how we'll conclude it later. But Tim had figured this out because he was the first person to identify this problem of drinking too much fluid uh, during exercise way back in 1981. You know, so he knew yeah. it the year I was born. That's how, how long ago he'd figured it out. But things changed slowly in science and there was all this resistance. And we used to get these lectures and learn all the characters and their incentives. And it really is a fascinating topic. And it goes back to the 1960s. Because prior to the 1960s, there was no fear of dehydration among athletes. I mean, marathon runners of the time used to actually boast about their ability to finish a race without touching a drop of liquid. Yeah. So Jim Peters, who was a multiple world record holder, and you may know him for his famous collapse in uh, 1954, these guys didn't drink. They used to actually say that it was a mark of endurance to finish a race without needing any fluid at all. Now, no. that's not what we're advocating here because that might be 
an extreme on the other end did you want to avoid? But it was the same. I mean, runners and comrades used to have one sip. And comrades, for those who don't know, is a 90-kilometer, 56-mile race. They used to have one or two sips of water start to finish. Yeah. And they were fine. And then in the 60s, things changed. And one of the catalysts for it was actually from American football. There's a team in Florida called the Gators, university team, the Florida Gators. And their coach figured that they were wilting in the heat. I mean, they do preseason camps starting in late summer in the, and Florida's south, it's hot, it's humid. It's a challenge for those guys with their pads and their helmets. And he goes to the local doctor at the university, he says, my players are struggling, I need a solution. And a guy called Robert Cade in 1965 develops that solution. And that solution is a fluid that contains additional electrolytes, sodium, potassium, chloride, and carbohydrates. And so they develop this stuff. They give it to the players. It's disgusting. They add a little bit of lemon <laughs> juice in it. Eventually they get it so it's tolerable. And there's only one team in the country that's got this, mm. right? Because it's specially developed for the gators in order to help them. Hence, gator aid. Yeah? Mm. yeah. And they go on and win the 1967 Orange Bowl, which is a big deal. And then in the best advertising money can't buy, the opposition coach is asked what the difference is. And he says the difference was Gatorade. Wow. And, they, and at the time, the they developed a, exactly. At the time, they develop a, uh, a reputation as a second half team. You know, they come on strong near the end when everyone else is fatigued. And like that Irish saying, as you always see umbrellas when it rains, doesn't mean the umbrellas cause the rain, but they thought that the Gatorade was causing the change in the team's performance. And so that was massively helpful to them. And then eventually it gets patented, it gets manufactured wholesale. Now it's being sold using Michael Jordan, using marathon runners, and so on. 1985, and there's a body of scientific evidence coming out between 65 and 85, but the Gatorade Sports Science Institute is launched, and they become a big funder of research in the U.S. They are one of the big corporate partners of what's called the American College of Sports Medicine, which is the big organization that uh, sort of oversees sports science and sports medicine around the world, especially in the U.S., and it sets up all these conflicts of interest. And that was what Tim really picked up on. And Tim, as you know, and listeners also may know, Tim does love a good fight with a conflicted, corrupt organization, sometimes to a fault. But on this one, he was right. And so what happened is, and, and let's get into some of that research, is that these studies were well-intentioned. And they were done by good academic researchers. But they were not good studies always because they were small in size. But ultimately, they were compromised by the agenda that they were funded by a company that needed to sell the drink. Yeah. And so if you go back to 19, I think it was in the 50s, 60s, one of the first studies on distance runners had these guys running in a hot environment on a treadmill, and they had free access to water. They could literally drink any time they wanted. It turns out that on average, they only drink about 50% of their losses. So if they ran for an hour, they would sweat one to one and a half liters. They'd only drink 500 to 700 mils of water, yeah. even though they could have had 100% of their losses. Yeah. Now, that means that voluntarily humans choose, not consciously, but for whatever reason, we choose to underdrink relative to sweat loss. That obviously is not a good thing if you're trying to sell a sports drink. And so the message becomes, for various other reasons, that you've got to drink more than to thirst, you have to drink to replace all your sweat losses. And so at some point, and again, there's research for this, which we can explore. At some point, scientists started to advise people that any fluid loss during exercise was potentially harmful to performance and dangerous to health. Yeah. Therefore, do not incur fluid loss. Dehydration is bad. Dehydration will hurt, harm, kill. Yeah. And so drink as much as you possibly can to avoid that. And that set us on a path that would ultimately prove fatal for some people. I think what's quite amazing about this story is that it, it makes total sense to the average person out there who doesn't do a lot of scientific research and reading to suggest that if you're dehydrated, you're going to be in some state of disrepair. Your body isn't going to be as efficient. And, you know, when you finish that long ride or long run and your pee looks like some sort of um, fallout from a nuclear power station, you know, you kind yeah. of, you think, well, that must be have a bad effect. And I think 
even to today, um, when I talk to people, having read a lot about what Tim Noakes has written, had a, read a lot of scientific papers, haven't answered, asked a lot of questions from people, the, the evidence is fairly clear now, but the average person still, and I, and I see this, and I, and I hate to sort of destroy a brand that I work on here, but even, that we, even though some of the content that we get written by our partners at, at Runners World in the US, right still to this point of giving the amount of, of um, stuff you should, or drink you should take in an hour. Mm. In other words, there are guidelines. You should drink 500 milliliters an hour. You should drink two bottles an hour, all that sort of thing. So there's still that sentiment, which makes total sense, that you have to replace fluid losses. So to say to somebody, yeah. only drink when you're thirsty, it's just totally counterintuitive, isn't it? Yeah, it, it can be. Let me, couple things. First of all, I'm very grateful for those obsessive fluid people for producing <laughs> the content that you publish in your magazine occasionally, because without that, I don't think we would have met. Well, we, we would have, because we were in the same circle. But the story for the listeners who don't know is when I was in my second year of my PhD, I read mm. the, the magazine and there was a piece which was clearly syndicated from the US yeah. doing exactly what you're saying now. Yeah. Drink and as much as you do. can. Yeah. Don't let yourself get dehydrated. Weigh yourself before and after. And if you've lost weight, you didn't drink enough. And I remember picking up, well, metaphorically picking up a pen and paper and writing you a letter. And I was probably quite formal, but also probably a bit cheeky. And I said, <laughs> listen, you can't publish this nonsense. We know better than this. Yeah. And to your credit, I think the late Lindsay Waite had just passed away like a couple of months before. Yeah. And she was a regular columnist. And he said, look, you can take the place. So that was our start, thanks to yeah. this fluid stuff. But for the listeners who've made it this far, and you've got through the introductory history lesson, this, what we're going to conclude here is that you do not need to drink more than you're thirsty. Drink to thirst. It's enough. That's it. End. Yeah. And humans are the only animals in history that have ever had to be told how much to drink. You don't need to push your animal's face in a water bowl and tell it to drink, drink, drink. No. And yet we're supposed to be the pinnacle of intelligence. <laughs> yet, yet for some reason we have to be in instructed. Now, the reason it seems sensible what you've just said is because people don't appreciate the other side, which actually also makes sense. Now... And I think about this often. Yesterday afternoon, we went cycling and we, we, we chased a couple of Strava PBs. And <laughs> I'm still at, a bit stiff. At one, point, <laughs> at one point, I remember coming up alongside you and saying, how's the heart rate there? And you say, it's 165. And I know that's high for you. Yeah. Mine was also high because we just gassed it through a segment that we wanted to try and nail the PB on. <laughs> now, I, you know, I often think of this as if I was to give your vital signs at that moment to a doctor, he would declare an emergency in that moment. Yeah. Your heart rate's 165. Your body temperature is 39.2. Your breathing rate is 35 breaths a minute. Your tidal volume is pushing two liters a breath potentially. Mm -hmm. I mean, your blood pressure might be a little bit elevated at that moment. You're sweating profusely. If a doctor saw you, he'd call a priest. Yeah. That sounds a good description of how I was feeling. But you were fine. You were actually yeah, yeah, fine. Yeah. And the point I'm trying to make is that when we exercise, the rules change a little bit. Mm. And that's what's, that's what's happening with dehydration. We have adapted over many, many, many generations. We're talking here evolutionary timeframes. The ability to lose fluid without harm. We had to do that because when we were hunter-gatherers, we could only hunt in the hottest part of the day. If we took our chances hunting at night when the predators were about, we'd have been extinct yeah. because we are neither faster nor fitter nor more powerful nor stronger than they are. We would have been food for them and that's it. Yeah. And so what humans did, and you can look this up on the internet, look up persistence hunting, is we chose to hunt when it was hot, when the sun was high, because other animals lacked the one thing we could do and that was sweat. Yeah. And so, and we had other adaptations. We were bipedal. We had linearity. We had less hair. Uh, we had the ability to lose heat and so on. But it was sweating that gave us these advantages, this yeah. thermal advantage. And so we would chase an animal, and it would run away. We'd keep going. Tortoise versus hare. That was what. That's what it was. And eventually, that animal would overheat before we did, and then we could kill it because it would literally lie down and wait to become our dinner for the next week. Yeah. And there's a great video that I think you've shown in some of your presentations where some of the Bushmen in the Kalahari literally walk up to the animal who can go no longer and just 
cut its throat. I mean, it's not, it's, it just doesn't have the ability to move anymore. And that's the yeah, same thing. That sometimes happens in humans. Look up Gabrielle Anderson in the 1984 Olympic Games, Los Angeles Marathon there, right? She came in 34th place, took her five minutes to do the last 400 meters. She's clearly suffering the consequences of elevated body temperature. Her body temperature has gone beyond 40. I mentioned a few minutes ago, Jim Peters in 1954. There's a video on the internet of him collapsing also showing classic heat stroke symptoms. His, yeah. his brain temperature has reached a point at which his body just cannot function and he collapses. And there's no incentive in the world. These studies have been done on cheetahs in yeah. laboratories, like literally the fastest animal on earth. And after a couple of minutes, they just fall down on the treadmill, like a giant cheetah-sized treadmill. Yeah. And they lie there with their paws in the air because that's their heat loss mechanism. Yeah. But the point is that we get to that point long after they do. And so this allowed us to hunt. And because of that, we could obtain protein-rich fuel stores. We could obtain the necessary building blocks to develop our own brains and evolve. So this, with reference to hydration, this ability to hunt in the hottest part of the day was essential to our evolution. But in order for it to happen, we had to develop the ability to lose fluid safely. Yeah. We had to develop the ability to manage our sodium levels despite the loss of fluid, and we'll get to why this balance matters. And we had to develop the ability to not be thirsty the moment our fluid balance changed because that would have compromised our evolution. Yeah. So when people say, oh, I don't want my urine to be dark, I don't want to get dehydrated, you're focused on the wrong thing. Your body is happy. Yeah. It's, it's analogous to saying I want to exercise, but I don't want my heart rate to go up. Well, then stay on the couch. <laughs> if, you, if you want to exercise and be physically active, you're going to get dehydrated and you will be fine. It is not a problem. It is in fact an essential mechanism of why you can exercise. So just talk me through some of the basic human physiology then, because you can die of dehydration. I mean, you can. So, if you were so dropped, what, what does it take to get to a point where dehydration does become a, a threat? If you were dropped in the middle of the desert, the Namib, the Kalahari, the Atacama, whatever it is, and you had days in which you had to get from where you were to the nearest place with water, there would be every risk that dehydration was going to kill you because you would lose fluid in sweat and yeah. water breathing and so on. Eventually, your body fluid levels would drop so low, your sodium levels would be so high, or what's called plasma osmolality, so elevated, that it would mess up the normal nerve function, the normal function of your cells. Because what happens is when your plasma sodium, which is the main driver of your plasma osmolality, so it's your elec it's electrolyte balance we're talking yeah. about now, when that becomes too high, then fluid moves from inside the cells into that space, into that plasma and extracellular fluid. That's bad. The mm -hmm. opposite's also bad. We'll get there. That's probably even worse and mm -hmm. more common. But, but yes, there's a point at which dehydration could become fatal. Now, that point, is it 6%? No, because marathon world record holders have finished races 6% dehydration and yeah. gone on a victory lap. Yeah. Uh, comrades marathon winners and... 10% of the field, I'm looking at data here, finish the race 5 to 8% dehydrated. Yeah. No problems. They don't even come into the medical tent. Yeah. Unless you were looking specifically for them, you wouldn't know they existed. Yeah. So 9, 10%, 10 plus, that's where dehydration starts to become a problem. But in a marathon or a training run, you've got no issue because there's mm. always going to be fluid available enough that within an hour you're going to get there so yeah. the worst you will feel is unbearably thirsty and that's it your lips will feel dry you'll feel hot and uncomfortable but you're fine you see i, I mean just putting in that sort of context to sort of clears it up in my mind it also helps me explain to those people what, what you mean because it's so hard to actually almost believe that science based on that number. So you say, okay, the top athletes in the world are dehydrated when they finish the bit. The comrades runners are running for some of them 10, 11 hours out there. They are going to be the ones that are, of course, going to be dehydrated. You and I might go for a two-hour ride. And as you said just before we did the podcast, we might go for a two-hour ride on a sort of midwinter's day when the temperature's in the 20 degrees Celsius and probably take one or two sips of water the entire ride. Um, in the afternoon, I will feel a bit dehydrated and my urine won't, won't look great. But 
it's just, it's such a hard thing to get your head around and to explain to people that actually that isn't the danger. The danger is so, you have to be so seriously dehydrated for it to be, be pose a danger. So, so I suppose the, the other question that we also need to clarify is that if we're saying it's dangerous when you're 10% dehydrated, do we know what the number is when you might see a performance um, decrease on dehydration? Is, is that the same as it would be if it was dangerous? Yes, because it's only at that point that it becomes physiologically detrimental. Yeah. Now, there are some caveats to that. If you start exercise hypohydrated, in other words, underhydrated from a couple of days, and there have been studies where they've, de they've deliberately dehydrated people by denying them fluid for a day or two mm. and then made them exercise, that seems to have a negative effect on performance. But once we are exercising, as I've mentioned, the set points change. Mm -hmm. So again, coming back to yesterday's ride, I hear that your, your heart rate's 165. I think nothing of it other than I'm aware that we really pushed it. Mm -hmm. Your body temperature, and I'm guessing, will be between 38.7 and 39.2. That's high fever territory. That's, that's mm -hmm. like I've got COVID, oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, but when, when you're exercising, you, you didn't even know you were hot. No. Um, and so what's happening is your body is changing its set points. That mm. was known from the 1930s. The early studies had worked out that the main determinant of your body temperature during exercise is the intensity of your exercise. So the faster you run, the hotter you get. The higher the power output when you cycle, the hotter you'll get. And there have been studies, one of them even here in this country, going back to the 1960s, where they were doing a 32 kilometers, so that's 20 miles, give or take, race. And measuring body temperature as a function of finishing time. And there's a pretty good linear relationship. The faster you run, the higher your body temperature. Now that paper concludes the dangers of dehydration during running. Yeah. It could have concluded the remarkable resistance of athletes to dehydration because <laughs> nobody, nobody got sick. Not a single one of the finishers in that race needed medical care of any kind. And they were all literally without exception because this was in the 60s before people got all obsessive about drinking, they were all dehydrated. If you define dehydration as having lost fluid. Now, yeah. again, Gabriel Selassie, famous case when he ran the Dubai Marathon, was around 8% of his body weight lighter at the finish than at the start. Here is data I'm looking right now, South African Ironman triathlons with 400 odd finishes and conservatively 30% of them are 5% or more dehydrated. Yeah. Now there is a school of thought and ACSM, the, the organization I mentioned, supported by Gatorade have said that for every one to 2% of dehydration, you lose 10% performance. Yeah. I mean, I've read it. <laughs> Gabriel, Gabriel Selassie would have done a one hour 25 marathon. It's a stupid statement. Mm. It's it, I just apply logic to those statements and say, well, if 90% of elite marathon runners are two or more percent dehydrated when they run 204, and you're going to tell me that's worth 10%? Yeah. You don't, need, you don't need springs and fancy magic shoes. All you've got to do is drink more. You'll break two hours. Yeah. It's, it's daft. Yeah. So these things don't pass muster when you actually apply them to the real world. So there is no performance decrement as a consequence of what humans have evolved to do. In fact, it probably benefits us. And I say that because if you're trying to run a 62-minute half marathon or a 205 marathon, or even, even if you're a decent runner trying to break three hours for the marathon, you're going to lose three to three and a half liters of sweat in that race. Yeah. I promise you that if you try to drink three to three and a half liters of fluid, <laughs> you would be throwing up by the 30K mark. Yeah. So in actual fact, your performance will be worse if you drink than not. Yeah. I suppose the other part of this is that when people drink um, any kind of fluid, and the Gatorade story is relevant here, is that it's not just about hydration, it's also about uh, bringing glucose into your system, uh, bringing the energy back a little bit, because a lot of these energy drinks are not just about hydration. So if, you're, if your energy levels are low, your sugar levels are low, they do have the benefit of raising your sugar level low if you're going to anaerobic state. So it's not just about hydration. That's why energy drinks perform potentially two functions. And that is why I think they got the wrong hook when they try to market it. I yeah. think that the carbohydrate replacement is actually clearly beneficial. So, yeah. you know, in the early days, they were so conflicted. And it was early days, but they would do studies where they'd have people come into the laboratory early in the morning, having not eaten or had anything to drink since the night before's last meal. 
and they would either let you go on water or a sports drink yeah. with a bit of carbs. Yeah. And obviously the sports drink outperforms the water because you're, you're running on empty otherwise. So mm. after an hour, hour and a half of decent exercise, your tanks are depleted. Now that's obviously a cause of fatigue. So, and I remember when Powerade, you know, I was once contacted by Powerade because they were looking at should they have protein in their sports drinks? And I said, I said to these guys, like, you guys are pushing the wrong message with fluid and electrolytes. That stuff's irrelevant. But the only the only scientifically credible message is the carbohydrate replacement for long duration exercise. That is clearly beneficial. So when you, when people give recommendations around how much you should, how much you should drink in an hour, it's less about the hydration and more about the potential carbohydrate replacement. That yeah. would be my that yeah. would be my advice. I'd be looking and saying, all right, you're doing moderate exercise intensities for three four hours. We would anticipate that that requires 500 to 700 grams of carbs per hour. Yeah. And so if you're drinking a 10 percent solution, it's 500 mils per hour in order to get your carbs in. 500 mils per hour, that's doable yeah. for a slower runner. The elites, by the way, 100 to 200. You just cannot. Mm. You try to run 21K an hour and drink more than that. It's very difficult to, on the, on the run. On the bike, a little bit different. You can, you can get away on the... So the fluid's almost the transport vehicle for the carbohydrate replacement. Exactly. I mean, that's kind of where exactly. we're going with this, is that the focus has to be rather on that rather than the hydration side of things. Correct, and that's true even if you use gels because the problem with a gel is it's a super concentrated solution. Mm. So it's a package that contains 25 grams of carbohydrates in mm. a little sachet. Mm. In theory, you don't need fluid with it, but your stomach's going to well, resent yeah, you yeah, if you yeah, don't. Because yeah, so, then what happens is you get this very sweet, sickly, high sugar content thing sloshing about in your stomach. Yeah. And then fluid goes into your stomach, and that's where you get the diarrhea and the stomach issues. So you need to drink water with a gel anyway. So you're right. It's, a, it's, either the, it's either directly the vehicle or it's the facilitator of the carbohydrates in the stomach. So that is, again... That is a message that I don't think you can refute. The, mm. the electrolytes, I mean, people say, oh, the reason you're going to get hyponatremia um, is because you drank only water and mm. you needed a sports drink for its electrolytes. Those electrolytes do so little to change your blood sugar, con uh, your blood sodium and your blood electrolyte levels that it, it, it is almost trivial. The only thing they do is they make the drink a little bit more palatable and they drive their own consumption because... A little bit of salt makes you want to drink more. And so you, if you gave athletes the choice of water and a sports drink with some electrolytes, yeah. they would voluntarily drink more electrolyte drink than normal water. Yes. Which is no, also okay, a good no, thing I, for I, cells. To be honest, I, I, this is something I'm learning here yes. about in this. So I always thought that the most critical part of these hydration, and, and we'll, maybe we, can, we need to move on to the subject of, of this hyponatremia thing, and I always feel like a bit of a sports scientist when I can talk like this, but hyponatremia is essentially where you get this idea of you having too much fluid in your system. In other words, your body becomes, swells up, and we'll get into the details and why that's dangerous. But you're saying that, the, that I always believe that getting the sodium level, levels correct was the, how you would stop this threat of hyponatremia happening. But you're saying that the drink or a drink that you have doesn't make any difference in that respect. So the first part is true. Getting the sodium levels correct is the key because yeah. that's, the, that's the problem. By definition, hypo means low, natremia means salt, sodium, so it's salt, not salt, sodium. Now, the, the plasma osmolality that I mentioned before is the key here because that osmolality is effectively a measure of the electrolyte balance between the fluid that is inside the cell and the fluid outside the cell. So we'll use an analogy here, one for the highlights reel. <laughs> uh, inside the cell is the houses in a neighborhood. Outside the cell is the streets and the gardens. So it's the spaces around the cells. If the concentration of electrolytes so like and, and it's primarily driven it's because there's positive ions like sodium potassium magnesium and there are negative ions like chloride and bicarbonate ions yeah yeah the main positive ion is sodium by far and so the plasma osmolality can often be assessed by proxy by simply measuring the sodium so that's why we think we're talking now about neutremia and not all electrolytes right so just for clarification so sodium is the key sodium is the key yeah when we, so, so and hyponatremia is low sodium, which is the condition that is more harmful and one you really want to avoid, potentially fatal. When that happens, it's a, it's a failure of fluid regulation. It's not a failure of salt regulation. So okay. imagine a, 
So here's here's the here's the way to think about it. There's a bucket of water here on the floor in your office, and it contains ten liters of water and one kilogram of salt. If you poured pure water into that, the salt concentration is going to get lower and lower and lower. You know this because if you had a sip of it, you'd spit it out. And mm. I'd say, no worries, Mike, we're just going to add a bit more water mm. until you can, because it's going to get less and less and less salty, yeah. right? Yeah. That's what's happening when you drink water when you exercise. You are adding fluid to a system and therefore you are diluting the diluting salt content the salt, of the yeah. system, obviously. The problem is that the salt content, the sodium content in particular of sports drinks is so low relative to what's in the blood that it really is like adding to our 10 liter bucket of water with one kilogram of salt, pure water and a teaspoon of salt. Hardly uh, gonna make a difference. Okay. The, the sodium content of those sports drinks is simply not going to be high enough to prevent the condition from developing because fundamentally, and this is the thing Tim showed, Fundamentally, hyponatremia is a problem of fluid overload, not salt loss. Right. You could, and there are medical conditions, where you lose too much salt and you'll end up in the same place. Right. But that's a different issue compared to what's happening during exercise. This is a condition where you are actually just overloading the system with a dilute fluid. Whether so that's a sports drink or water actually doesn't matter all that much. So we get onto the the, the real what the causes of this the issue around water intoxication and hyponatremia. But but it's it's interesting that so when I always believe that if you went out there and you were taking a sports drink instead of water, you were basically making yourself resistant to hyponatremia. But what you're saying is that's not true because there's not enough in it. And in fact, the best way to avoid this serious condition of hyponatremia is just just to drink to thirst. Don't overdrink because you've been told to drink 500 milliliters an hour. That's actually not the right way to think about it because no matter what you drink, it, it, there's still that danger. Exactly. And so it was in 1995 that a student of Tim's, a guy called Irving, I think Rob Irving, I forget his first name, discovered that when you look at these athletes with hyponatremia, mm. the cause of their problem is not a sodium deficit. It's not that they've lost sodium. So in other words, we haven't taken yeah. that one kilogram of salt and cut half of it out and taken it out the bucket. We've gotten to our low sodium level by adding fluid, not losing salt. And now the, the ACSM Gatorade inspired research, when, when hyponatremia was first identified, their position was that it was salty sweaters people who lost salt in their sweat, therefore their sodium was being lost through sweat, mm -hmm. and that was causing them to lose um, or to, to drop their sodium content of the plasma. So they would have suggested that hyponatremia was caused by the loss of salt. It's yeah. simply not true, yeah. because no matter how salty your sweat, the sweat is still hypotonic relative to the plasma. So in other words, the, so the sodium content of your sweat is still going to be lower than the sodium content yeah. in your blood. And if that's happening, then logically, the consequence of sweating is an increase in sodium, not a decrease. You cannot achieve a loss of sodium through sweating. It's not possible because you mm. always lose more water than you do sodium. So I guess that's why Tim's book is well named in terms of its being waterlogged. It's the mm. it's the overhydration and the, the description of hyponatremia is often referred to as water intoxication. Exactly. Um, so it's a better way of thinking about it. So not thinking of the term hyponatremia, which sounds very really scientific, but focusing on the fact that it's waterlogged and water intoxication that is the problem. It's exactly. overload of fluid. And so, so just on that to clarify, if I drink pure water. My sodium, so your normal sodium, by the way, 140, 137 to 145 millimolar. That's your normal sodium that's in your concentration. Gut. That's in your plasma. That's your, in your plasma, plasma yeah. osmolality, right. right? When you drink, so, so what happens with these people who develop hyponatremia is that they often follow advice, and I'll give you some examples, we even give you some names. They will follow the advice that they've provided before a race, and they will drink drink, 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 because they are so scared of losing weight and being dehydrated that they'd overdo it. Yeah. As a consequence, their sodium level drops and they often end up in a medical tent and their sodium levels might be 110, 115. Now the problem is that with that low level of sodium, the plasma osmolality is now so low 
compared to the cell. So our streets and gardens are basically watery and the houses are salty. Mm. Fluid is now going to go into the houses. So it's going from the plasma and the interstitial fluids and the extracellular spaces, as they're called, into the cells. Right. So the cells expand because they're being filled with water. They burst. Through osmotic pressure, basically. Through osmotic pressure. When that happens in the brain and in the lungs, you get cerebral edema and you get uh, lung edema, Mm. pulmonary edema, rather. That mean, that means you can no longer breathe mm. because your little air sacs are being filled with fluid. And your brain, your midbrain, all your vital functions are now being affected because your brain is swelling inside a rigid skull. Mm. And that's why the symptoms. So in 1981, the first case ever is identified by, well, Tim wasn't there, but he received notification of it. Comrades Marathon, 20 or so K from the finish, a woman fails to recognize her husband standing on the side of the road. He pulls out the race. They send her to hospital. She's got a sodium level of 110. So 140, now down to 110. She's delirious. She's confused. She's bloated. Everything's swollen up. Mm. Over the next couple of days, they bring her sodium back up, and luckily she recovers. Others haven't been so lucky because they, they, they just cannot get their sodium levels up quickly enough, and their vital functions start to shut down. So... So that's, that's the key thing that's happening here is your sodium levels dropping. Now, back to the sports drinks. Because they contain some sodium, they will, they will decrease that rate of, of yeah. sodium dropping, right? Yeah. So it, it might be that on water you went from 140 to 110. On a sports drink you go from 140 to 115. And you say, well, oh, look, it works. Mm. No, it works a little bit. It changes the scale of the problem, but the problem is still the, dr- the drink. Mm. And, you know, the sad thing was that what they were doing, and you'd get your pack before a marathon, and it would have an advertisement in there, and it would say, research from the Gatorade Sports Science Institute. So it's credible. Yeah. Scientists have shown that your body needs 40 ounces of fluid per hour. And a fluid ounce is 30 mils. Yeah. So that's 1.2 liters per hour. <laughs> so now you've got a person running the Boston Marathon, and she reads this advice. She believes it to be credible. She says, I'm going to drink 300 mils every 15 minutes because that's what scientists have told me to do. Yeah. Five hours later, she's drank six liters. Yeah. But she's running a, a five-hour marathon. So what's her sweat rate? And she's running relatively slow effort. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Because the intensity is so low, she's walking 20% of the race. She's mm. jogging 75% and running 5% of it. Her sweat rate is three, four hundred. Yeah. She's gaining six, seven hundred mils per hour. Yeah. By the time she gets to the finish line, if she gets to the finish line, she's going to be three, four kilograms heavier than when she began. And it's all fluid. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So it's the slower runners actually that are most at risk here. Exactly. Yeah. The faster runners get hotter because their intensity is higher, mm. they lose 5 6 7% of their body mass, but they can deal with it because they're actually adapted and they're not drinking. Mm. The slow runners are the ones who've got the time and also the ones who need the fluid the least. It's a dangerous combination. But so I also think when you're at the back of the field, and I know this place very well, <laughs> that when you're running a marathon and you're sort of you know, four hours in and you're starting to really hurt and you're, you know, you've know got 5Ks to go, you, you're looking for anything to make you feel better and you think, well, if I have that, you know, you're walking through that water table because you've been walking for the last two kilometers, um, you're going to drink more because you're going to think, if I drink more, maybe I'll get more energy, maybe my hydration levels will come up. So your, your brain starts working against you um, because you think it's going to help. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because you're conditioned by marketing messages yeah. Yeah. aided by science with good intentions but with bad consequences. So are, you, so are you saying then that the, the biggest – I mean, do we know for a fact that 
dehydration hasn't killed anybody and hyponatremia and water intoxication is more of a threat? I mean, I think, is that, is that a fair statement? Definitely, definitely. No, nobody has documented. So first of all, dehydration is, an, is, a, is a vague, slippery term. Because mm. um, as I said to you, 90%, if not more, of athletes who finish endurance events are dehydrated. Yeah. As in one or more percent loss of fluids. Now, loss of body weight. Now, right. bo- just as an aside, body weight's not the best proxy for weight for fluid loss because we're also losing weight as a consequence of fuel that we're using. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a kilogram or two potentially of fuel oxidation and water is released when we break down glycogen. And so to actually get a handle on how much fluid I've lost is a little trickier than just weighing yourself before and after. But it's and, accessible. And it's, it's amazing how many times I have read in very credible publications about how to measure your sweat rate based on your weight before and after exercise. And the people say, okay, go and do a run for an hour, weigh yourself before, weigh yourself afterwards. You've lost 300 grams. Therefore, you must make sure every time you run for an hour, you take in 300 milliliters of fluid yeah i mean that is common that is very common teaching yeah and it and it empowers people terrifying it empowers people right because i'm i'm gonna do this i'm gonna get on that bike i'm gonna do a one hour swift ride and i'm gonna weigh myself before i'm gonna towel off make sure i'm nice and dry and weigh myself afterwards oh wow 800 grams lighter that's Mm. fluid and therefore next time i'm gonna do 800 grams there are so many problems with that because number one is not all those 800 grams are fluid yeah so maybe only 700, 650 were fluid and the others were, were metabolic water that you actually can't afford to lose or fuel mm. molecule, uh, fuel stores. Hopefully it's fat. So, so the, <laughs> the be- hopefully a tiny bit but of that. I mean, that's, that's 40 <laughs> grams worth. The, the, but the, it, that method, if you, if you followed that method and you didn't lose any weight, you would be overhydrated by definition. Yeah. Because that 800 gram loss in mass is not in not a hundred percent fluid loss so if you matched it you would be overloaded fluid wise that makes sense hopefully yeah the other problem with it is let's say john who's our fictional guy we always go to on this yeah. podcast to talk hypotheticals <laughs> john hears this podcast and he says he's going to do this he's going to go for a one hour run and he's going to measure his weight before and after and he does exactly this and he works out 900 grams the problem is john went running at 4 30 when it was 23 degrees celsius because he had to be home for bath time and feeding the kids he takes this advice into his next marathon, but he ran for one hour, quite a lively pace, five minutes a K, 12 Ks. He's going to run that marathon at 7 a.m. in the morning when it's 15 degrees, so 10 degrees cooler. Yeah. He's also going to run at a minute a kilometer slower, but he's going to apply his lab study where he worked out 900 grams to his marathon and he's going to be 300 over, which means he's going to gain one kilogram in the marathon of fluid. So yeah. it just doesn't it just doesn't work even Incredible. even as a as an application even if the principle was sound it probably still wouldn't work. Mm. So you yeah. don't need to do it. I understand why people do it because it empowers them and it makes them feel like they can actually anticipate and optimize their body as if their body was a car radiator. It's mm. not. Yeah. You're not you don't work that way. Your body is more than happy to dehydrate and it will do so. So the key thing there is your body doesn't regulate weight loss. Mm. That's not what drives the physiology of thirst, and it's not what drives the hormones that balance your fluids out. What does drive those is the osmolality. Mm. And it's a, it is one of the most sensitive systems we have, and this is an argument for thirst. Our plasma osmolality is regulated at a level between 280 and 300. As I've said to you, it's mostly driven by sodium levels, which are at 140 or so. The thirst mechanism is so sensitive that when that changes by three or 4%, we get thirsty. Mm. Because our body has sensed in the hypothalamus of our brain, which is the master control center, our body senses an increase in osmolality, an increase in sodium. And it says, you need to drink. Yeah. And then you go and you seek water. And when you're running a marathon, you don't have to seek very far because there's a table every 10 minutes. Yeah. So you say, oh, I'm gonna take a sip next time. You take that sip, the signal is gone because it doesn't need to exist anymore. Right. Meanwhile, in addition to this, unknown to you, that hypothalamus is also driving hormones in your body that also do the same thing. And one of them is called ADH, anti-diuretic hormone. So anti meaning opposed to, mm. diuresis is urine output. Mm-hmm. So what this hormone does is it acts in the kidneys to retain water. So the moment our plasma sodium levels go up, our plasma osmolality rises, 
Our body secretes this hormone. It sucks water back into our systems from our kidneys. And the consequence is we dilute our blood a little more, back to normal, yeah. happy. Yeah. Body is perfectly happy. The problem is that when we take the water out of the kidneys back into the body, then what comes out in the urine is what? Yeah. Super concentrated. Yeah. That's when you go and you have yeah. a pee after you exercise. And it and burns like, a bit even sometimes. Like, oh, I'm peeing what looks like Coca-Cola. Yeah. Yeah. What's going on here? Yeah. Now, okay, I'm being flippant. If you have very dark urine, like even to the point of black or red, mm. that is potentially a metabolic problem. Yeah. Unrelated to fluid, more, more related to muscle breakdown. It's called rhabdomyolysis and it can, that's, that's a very, very serious issue. Yeah. But dark urine, not ridiculously dark urine. Dark urine is nothing more than a sign that your body is working. Yeah. It really is. It's, it's, uh, it's overhyped by people. Oh, you gotta have your urine must be clear. Yeah. No, no. If, you're, if your urine is dark, it's just a sign that your kidneys are functioning. Congratulations. Yeah. I mean, it, it is It is such a, I, I mean, the more I talk about this, the more I start to get the, this idea that it's so hard to convince people of this sort of mechanism. Let's just move uh, move forward to this the, the idea around, um, which, which Tim Noah talks a lot about in his teachings and in the book about ad libitum. So let's just have a look at what this means. Ad libitum in strictly means to drink, to thirst. And this is why I struggle with this so much. So when I go for that long Sunday ride, the thing that I struggle with is sometimes at the end of that ride, I would have drank less than half a bottle over 85 Ks and four hours of riding. And people that I ride with will go like, how can you only drink that amount? Because I don't feel like drinking. The, the, the idea that I must only drink when I feel like drinking feels that for me, I go, I've got to drink more than half a bottle of water in four hours, surely. But my body is not telling me that I should. And yes, I am dehydrated at the end, but I always think in the back of my mind, am I really suffering at the end of that ride because I'm dehydrated, because I'm not drinking enough, so I try and focus on drinking more? Or am I just, is my body saying, you don't, you don't need it. That's not the reason why you're tired. You're tired because you're just ridden a long way. I mean, is that, is, am I, can I, give peace to myself to say, yeah, you only drank half a liter of half a bottle of your 750 mils in four hours. And that's probably all you really needed for that ride. Maybe if you don't need to remind yourself to breathe, you don't need to remind <laughs> yourself to drink is my opinion. Is it as simple as that? The, the thirst mechanism is exquisite. It really, really is. And as I mentioned, the, the, the concept of humans being persistence hunters, yeah. has enabled us to develop the ability to delay that thirst and to tolerate its consequences. Because, you see, they didn't have aid stations every 30 minutes while they were hunting. Yeah, They didn't know whether they'd get water, so they'd start their hunt at 11 in the morning and, or maybe 10, and they'd continue for four or five hours. Yeah. And the next time they were going to see liquid was potentially when they made the kill Yeah, and then got it back to where they came from. So yeah. They, they didn't have that luxury, but they were able to, and, and they developed this adaptation. Without that adaptation, we wouldn't have evolved the way we, we did. So there is a, there is a sense or, or a bit of nuance here, almost a caveat. When you do extremely long duration exercise, now we're talking comrades that takes most of the field 11 hours or more, 10 and a half to 11 hours or more. Yeah. When you do an Ironman triathlon that, that cut off for 17 hours, I believe, when you do these 100 miler races, it's possible that the, and, and, and I say this based on experience because we've been in the medical tents of some of these events over the last 20 years or so, and we're checking the sodium contents of people who come into those tents. Now, a couple of things is, first of all, there is no difference in sodium levels of the people who come for medical care and who don't. Yeah. So comrades, there are 13,000 people start, 130 more or less are expected to come to the tent. They work on a, an assumption that on a typical year, it's 1%. If it's a really hot, uncomfortable year, it goes to 2%, a good year is 0.6%. So 1% of the field will seek medical care. That 1% is no different from the 99% who do not with respect to sodium levels and osmolality. Everyone mm. is more or less dehydrated, <laughs> Between one and five percent is probably the, the the typical level of dehydration is about three to five percent. Okay. Yeah. Um, there are some very serious cases where you weigh the person and you check their sodium levels and they are low. The most serious medical complications come from hyponatremia, not hypernatremia. However, the people who do come to the medical tent, and I remember this experience vividly. They are nauseous and they just feel beaten up because, okay, they've just been running for 10, 11 hours and they are 
they've lost their their appetite and their desire to drink anything. Yeah. The solution for them is to get fluid in. The administration of fluid, which brings their sodium levels down because they're at 147, 150 instead of the normal 135, 140, mm. a little bit of fluid in them, 20 minutes with their feet up, a little bit of TLC from a nurse or a doctor, and they're good to go. And they leave the tent and most of them are fine. Yeah. So it's, it's possible. What I'm getting at here is it's possible that when we do such long duration exercise after seven, eight, nine hours, our thirst mechanism is so disrupted by the metabolic changes of exercise yeah. that You've we actually then under drink. and bananas. That's and, the problem. Yeah, yeah. And I remember sampling, they, a number of them said to us that the, by the time they got to the finish, they, they give the, the water out in these little sachets of water and they said the plastic actually tasted like it was toxic. Yeah. They're, yeah. Just, they're just wrecked because your body is doing 10, 11 hours of this and it's uncomfortable. And as you mm. say, mm. sweet stuff for 10, 11 hours, that's mm. probably the cause. Yeah. Yeah. So a person with a bit of discipline might then start to force fluid intake on themselves. Mm. But they don't need to force fluid intake beyond thirst. Mm. But they might be able to anticipate thirst and just make sure that they they do in the ninth, 10th, 11th, 15th hour what they would have done in the second, third, fourth hour with yeah. respects to thirst. Because you, you don't want to be thirsty. No. Yeah. No. As, long as, you can, as long as you can satisfy your thirst, you're fine. Yeah. And but notwithstanding the fact that the hydration, hydration itself is the carrier of what we've talked about earlier, carbohydrate. So when I talk about that long ride on the Sunday, I might be blown in the last 30 Ks, maybe because my glucose levels are down and my carbohydrate levels are down, mm. not because I'm dehydrated. Exactly. Yeah. So then, then the solution was you didn't drink enough, but it's not that you didn't drink enough fluid, yeah. it's that you didn't drink enough medium to get the energy levels yeah. where they needed to be. So your yeah. blood sugar levels have, have, have dropped now, plummeted. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so exactly that. So when you get athletes doing multi-stage day things and you've got the challenge of hydrating from the evening of a Monday to the start of the stage on a Tuesday, when you do 100 milers that are lasting 24 hours, these yeah. challenges like we spoke to Emilio Boone about, then you might need to start being a little bit more diligent later on in exercise about thirst because that mechanism might be a little bit uh, negatively affected by the actual exercise challenge. But for the rides that we do, and even marathon running, four hours and so on, there's no, there simply is no need to tell your body to do something that it's been designed over millennia to do. It just does not compute. Mm. Mm. <laughs> so you don't need to, you don't need to force drinking on yourself. I know it's difficult for people. They want to feel a degree of control. That's true. But it's just, yeah, it's, it's crazy. The more, the more you study this complex thing, the simpler the solution becomes. So, I mean, let's, give, let's end with some really practical advice now. So if we're talking about somebody doing a four to five hour marathon, which is probably the vast majority of marathoners around the world, and you're saying to them, okay, we, we're telling you, and hopefully they've got this now, you're not going to drink because you're told to drink X amount of fluid, but you need to replace carbohydrates. What's a good strategy to look at in terms of an hourly intake, you know, based on the fact that you still need to fuel your body with carbohydrates. How, so do you, how do you do that? Do you do it through gels? Do you do it through real food without necessarily putting too much fluid in your system? So you, the first thing is you do it through what you habituated with. So there are people right. now, many more now than there were 10 years ago, also in large part, certainly in South Africa, thanks to Tim, who don't consume carbohydrates much at all um, in their daily diets, in their habitual yeah. diets. Those people probably don't need the same gel carbohydrate delivery during exercise because their bodies are adapted to use fat slightly more. So mm. in a four-hour marathon for someone who is habituated to high-fat, low-carb diets, so let's just think, if the guy weighs 80 kilograms, there's about 3,000 calories that he's going to need. 50% of those will come from carbs and 50 from fat. Right. So it's 1,500 calories from carbs, which is three 400 grams. He starts with fuel stores, as long as he's eaten a good breakfast and something the night before. He starts with half of those. So he, he only needs... Which another, will last him 90 minutes odd. Yeah, probably if he has a bit of breakfast before and right. he's eaten a little bit before, he'll probably get to two, two and a half hours if he's habituated and well-trained yeah. and going at that intensity. If right. he's running a sub three... 230, yeah. now he's got a different challenge. He's burning a lot more carbohydrate. carbohydrate yeah. yeah, we discussed that. Remember, even yeah. in our last podcast, yeah. your your fuel use shifts to carbs the harder you go. Right. So wh where were we there? So we said he needs 200. Well, well, There's a lot of numbers you're throwing at me. Yeah. I'm asking you to define it as a Snickers bar. 
goodness. <laughs> Can you break it down? I mean, I, I when, when you throw numbers about how many grams per hour I've got to, to eat or drink, I don't really know what that means in terms of what do I put in my mouth. Yeah, I should have saved the label of my Snickers bar that I had at the... <laughs> I know whenever you go for a ride, your go-to is a Snickers bar, my go-to is a Bounty bar. I don't know if you get Bounty bars around the world, but... And I don't know with the, what the ratio a, is. That's because it's a chocolate with coconut, and the rest of the world does not... <laughs> poison chocolates with coconut. <laughs> so, so if... You know, so the harder you're going, the more carbs you need, yeah. even as a rate per hour. For the, for the guy running a typical marathon in, like, let's say, four hours, you probably need to add to the system because you're starting with a full, not a full tank, but you're starting yeah. with something in those tanks, your muscle glycogen and your liver glycogen stores. You probably need to add, uh, let me just do the maths. Let me, excuse listeners, pardon the silence. I'm doing sums <laughs> in my head here. Um, I can see the smoke going over so your 15, ears. You probably need 150 to 200 grams or so of carbs right. over those four or five hours. That's 40 grams per hour, mm -hmm. which would be deliverable with five, 600 mils of a sports drink right. per hour. Of a standard sports drink. Yeah, because they, they tend to be at around nine, eight, 9%. So right. every 100 mils is giving you eight grams. So if you needed 50 grams per hour, you would need 600 mils per hour of a sports drink. And is that feasible, 600 milliliters? It depends on your palate and your taste because some yeah. people can't drink 200 mils of a sports drink yeah. and their teeth start to feel like they're going to explode and they right. get sticky tongue and they can't swallow and it's just unpleasant. If that's the case, then you just you go to a gel that is more uh, neutral tasting mm. and mm. you just make sure that you dilute it with enough water so it doesn't cause stomach issues. Mm. If you can't do gels because some people hate gels, then you've got to start thinking about Jelly babies. I was going to say any jellies, man. Those are any jellies yeah. or chocolates. But okay, chewy chocolates are not the best, maybe. Uh, or you need to think about consuming something a little salty, pretzels, mm. Uh, mm. potatoes. Baked potato is a hit when you do the comrades and and here yeah. in Cape Town we have two oceans. They give baked potatoes out. It's it's like the go to. Oh. They're glorious. Yeah. So, and it's because it breaks up that sweetness cycle, mm. and that's mm. the sort of thing you do. So, I think you just build your energy replacement strategy around your your taste and your preferences, but you aim for forty to sixty grams per hour of carbohydrates at those intensities. These days, the top Ironman triathletes are training and teaching their bodies how to use 100 plus grams per hour of carbs. And they're doing that with specially formulated solutions, fructose and glucose. And this is a whole other thing around energy provision during exercise. But you, you learn and you adapt to mm. energy provision the same way you adapt to training through practice and physiological adaptation. Here's a quick question I want to throw at you, and you, I, didn't, I know you weren't prepared for this one, but the whole Coke and water scenario, I mean, I, I, I've, I come from, a, uh, from a, a long line of my dad doing the Conrad's Rennies many years ago, and, um, you know, Coke and water amongst the traditional runners here in South Africa is still the go-to. People say, I don't do any of these other drinks, I just mm. drink Coke and water when I run and I do it on my training and on the Conrad's itself. Is there some merit to that? Yeah, because Coke... And there's some fine prints here because I noticed the other day that Coke is now lower sugar. Even the standard yeah. Coke is lower sugar is it? than okay. it was before. Coke used to be, if memory serves me, 10.8%, which means that every 100 mils was 10.8 grams. So 500 mils of Coke, which is a couple of cups, so let's say you had that every 30 minutes, means that you'd have a liter of Coke an hour, which would give you uh, 108 grams of carbs an hour, which oh, is a far lot. Off. Which is a lot. So, yeah, it's mean, but diluted, it's but that you had to dilute it because mm. for a lot of people, that 10 11 percent solution is too sweet for the stomach. Because now you've got pure sugar, as we mentioned, sitting in the stomach, water moves in, you get diarrhea, you get stomach issues. So, yeah. they would they would drink a cup or two of Coke with a cup or two of water, and now suddenly it's a five percent solution in the stomach, but you're still getting the volume of carbs exactly the same way. So, it is an effective way to do it. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, I know that from after, after this podcast, we're unlikely to get any sponsorship from any sports drink companies. Uh, but I hope that we have clarified an issue which we know has been around in the in the sort of scientific biosphere for for at least a decade now, probably longer. And um, but I hope that uh, through Ross and I's discussion today, you have an idea about what hydration looks like and how it works in terms of whatever you do, marathon running or cycling or whatever that is. Because even today, having spent so many years investigating this and answering so many questions. I've learned a lot from just listening to Ross. So, Ross, thank you very much. And yeah. we'll uh, chat to you next. Last, last word, Ross? Just 
listen to your body. Listen to your like body. Thirst, thirst knows you don't need to force Rover the dog and <laughs> Mittens true. the kitten to drink and then neither do you because you have the same thing driving your, your patterns. And so just drink to thirst. I love this sentiment that I saw from a friend of mine the other day. We were talking about running and he said, when we, when we talk about all these things that we have, the way we run, how our body is able to operate, you, you've got to say to yourself, you know what, Mike Finch, you have an amazing body. And we do because that's really what this is about. Trust your body because it actually does know what to do. Yeah, and why would you then take that amazing physiology that's got 50 layers of regulation, it's got antidiuretic hormone, it's got aldosterone. We didn't even mention aldosterone. Yeah. We didn't even mention some of the regulatory things that help us keep in fluid balance. Why would you take that physiology and reduce it to the level of a radiator in a car? It's just daft. Your body knows, listen to it, and you'll be fine. And that's us for the moment. I will chat to you next time on the Real Science of Sport podcast. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport podcast. 